You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Good afternoon. Welcome to Conversations and Meditations. I am your host, Virgil Varix. Okay, and let's just jump into the show. All right, so the first thing I want to mention is uh, please go and check out www.conversationsandmeditations.com. Got a lot of nice new things there. Got some updates on the show notes. I got some updates on some blog posts. I'm working on some other blog posts. Um, on episode eight, I had my friend August come in. And we talked about uh, race, identity, culture, ethnicity, and him and I are actually working on a blog post together right now um, on criminal justice reform. And hopefully as soon as that's done, we can get him in here and really kind of unpack all the stuff we're going to be talking about and um, the future of what we see in criminal justice and how we can put common sense solutions to um, problems that have kind of had uh, – pretty unfortunate and terrible solution. So that's just kind of a heads up of what's coming up in the next few weeks. Um, like I mentioned uh, a couple podcasts ago, the end of January, I'm going to be going to see Sam Harris and Eric Weinstein, uh, Eric Weinstein, uh, Weinstein uh, excuse me. Uh, and uh, at that point, uh, after that uh, show, I'm going to be coming in here with Awkward Hermit and uh, August, who are both going to be there. And we'll kind of do an unpacking of what the show was about and uh, some of the ideas talked about. And if we had any questions to them, were we able to ask any questions, any of the sort of type of thing. So just wanted to give you guys an update of what the schedule is going to be like uh, throughout the holidays. Uh, we're still going to be doing podcasts. Uh, so just uh, keep an eye out for uh, you know updates. Um, going to be using the social media more now. Uh, I've been kind of trying to stay away from social media because I watch – other people use it and uh, watch them engage and uh, watch it make them go insane. So I've been uh, debating this for quite some time now, and I will be trying to engage more on social media uh, for the betterment of myself and for the betterment of the show ultimately. Okay. So today's show is going to be about uh, a very common topic we've talked about here, economics. So, you know, the, the last time we've had um, – some shows on economics, you know, we talked about, um, well, particularly coming to the political economics type of stuff. We talked about Democratic Socialists of America. And then after that, uh, there was a show about uh, the, uh, you know, human progress and capitalism and what, how how much progress has been made under uh, the 
over the last actually 30 years and plus since, uh, you know, they've been measuring certain things and certain measurements of, you know, poverty and uh, infant mortality rate. So that show was primarily looking over the history of capitalism the last 250 plus years and seeing how things have gotten better. Um, and then we also had a show, you know, debunking myths, you know, common myths about economics with my friend uh, D. And then from there, you know, today's show, I kind of wanted to step back a little bit and kind of talk about, um, you know, what is economics, you know, and what are the elements of economics? What, what comprises economics? You know, uh, because to be honest with you, economics for many people is a topic, is a subject that tends to get people nervous primarily because they think it requires a lot of math uh, for one reason. Another reason is they think it requires a um, a degree to actually have any sound knowledge. You know, a lot of people will like to say if you don't have a degree in economics and you can't really speak on something, you know, this is a fallacy of, you know, appealing to authority uh, and to, you know, appealing to power. So, again – it's it's much more nuanced than that, and uh, at least in terms of the ability to to learn this stuff. I mean, this stuff is not rocket science, right? Uh, there is some difficult things here and there, and I'm not going to necessarily be covering them today. But some of the stuff I want to do is kind of give you know the basics of it and what it is, and you know how I have uh, come to see it. Now, a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today. A lot of the stuff is technical. Some of the stuff is more conceptual and, you know, kind of um, in the air. But remember that this is uh, this type of, you know, podcast, this type of discussion today is going to primarily be very similar to what you would get in, uh, for instance, Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson or uh, taking a Econ 101 class or something like that. This is just a very basic overview of of economics and um, what it actually is. So economics is a study of uh, of the use of scarce resources and uh, that have alternative uses. So examples of resources include, you know, land, labor, natural resources, and capital. Uh, there's never been enough resources to satisfy everyone completely. So trade-offs must be made uh, on an individual and societal level. The decisions around how to allocate these resources to produce the best um, output is a central question of economics. That's what we're trying to ask. You know, that's what that's what that's what the questions that that come to economists are really asking. Essentially, you know. So, as an analogy, um, when we're in war uh, with wounded soldiers, there's never enough doctors and nurses to go around. And I think I might have mentioned this case before, but uh, I'm gonna mention it again. You know, some wounded are past the point of being saved. Others have had a chance. They get urgent care, and uh, they will die if they don't. And others will recover without any urgent treatment. Thus, there's a limited, you know, medical resources must be allocated to maximize output. Uh, you know, this is this is an economic problem as much as it is a moral and uh, uh, ethical problem in a lot of ways. The allocation of resources is critical to a nation's wealth. You know, there are poor countries with rich natural resources and rich countries with few natural resources. So a great example of that is a rich country with a few natural resources. Take Hong Kong, right? So that's not uh, – it's, this is not necessarily a, uh, a country, sort of. It was at one point uh, you know, a subject of the British government, separate from China, but in 2014 that changed. But anyways, uh, nonetheless, uh, Hong Kong 
about, I want to say, 80 years ago, maybe 90 years ago, if you push it a little farther, um, was basically a fishing village, right? There wasn't anything there. There was no oil. There was no ore. There was nothing special to Hong Kong that would make it make you make you make it you know seem that it would be the the place it is today, you know, pretty much on on top of the list for economic freedom, uh, pretty much on top of the list when it comes to per capita income, very close to the United States in a lot of ways, um, expectancy and all this other stuff, uh, job you know unemployment. All those metrics are very, very high, and uh, Hong Kong tends to have no historical and no current natural resources. So, what made them so rich? You know, think about that. And then you, you know, you take a place like Russia, which has a tremendous amount of natural resources, and their economy is pretty much in the tank, right? And I think their economy is, if I'm not mistaken, the size of a few United, a few states in the United States. So, um, this is just kind of a, a fact of life, right? So um, ultimately, as Ludwig von Mises would point out uh, in his book Human Action, economics is a study of cause and effects. You know, therefore, the economic policies are important to judge by their consequences and incentives rather than their goals and motivations. You know, Sowell talks greatly about that at length, about uh, you know, that your goals and motivations may be pure, they might be great, they might they might be with the intentions of of making you know your society, the country. Uh, the city, uh, the town, a better place. But ultimately, when it comes to economic issues and economic outcomes, economic policies, they should be judged primarily on their consequences and incentives. So, you know, like I said, a well-meaning policy can have terrible unintended consequences. And sometimes, you know, this can lead to a lot of horrible things. So, you know, we gotta. We have to. You know. I think a big thing when talking about economics is providing a bridge between common sense and the basic principles of economics. So, hopefully, with this discussion today, I can help you. You know, begin to think like an economist and provide important insights, especially with regards to how the world and the econo- economics around the world actually works. So some of the concepts today I want to talk about, I, I mentioned incentives, you know, I mentioned scarcity, um, marginalism, opportunity cost. So changes in benefits and costs will influence choices in a, in a predictable manner. You know, when the cost of an action increases, individuals will be less likely to choose it. When the benefit of an action increases, individuals will be more likely to choose it. You know, this is a simple, simple idea sometimes, uh, called the basic postulate of economics. It's a powerful tool because it applies to almost everything that we do in life. And this is also, you know, talking, this kind of emphasizes why incentives matter, right? So what are incentives? You know, incentives are the reward and penalties associated with choices. Uh, Changes in our incentives alter the behavior of people. So when the incentives are pointed in the direction that reward a certain type of behavior. So for instance, as a critique of the current model and system we have in terms of economics and state power, can, you know, in association with it, a lot of cronyism happens. And when the incentives are pointed towards encouraging cronyism and, and disencouraging, you know, a free market, free enterprise capitalist system, then 
the behavior of people will change. I mean, look at Enron, look at a lot of these corporations that were either in bed with the government or had some affiliation with the government and, you know, the United Fruit Company and all these other cases in history where the government and corporations were really hand in hand, uh, using each other to gain power, influence, uh, money. I mean, uh, it's endless, really, the amount of how bad incentives can really change people's behaviors. So incentives also influ- you know, influence choice of individuals in all areas. This includes you know, personal, the business, and the political. So when you talk about incentives, you know, you're talking about prices and, and coordination of actions of the buyers and sellers, ultimately. So prices alter the incentives confronted uh, by both buyers and sellers. So a higher price will encourage buyers to purchase less in higher you know, prices will also encourage sellers to supply more. You know, if a consumer wants to buy more than uh, sellers are willing to supply, the prices will rise, right? So, um, but the higher prices will reduce the quantity purchased to increase the quality, or excuse me, the quantity supplied until the two are brought into a balance. This is called equilibrium. Um, what will happen if producers are supplying more than, you know, consumers are willing to, uh, willing to purchase? You know, prices will decline, causing suppliers to produce less and consumers to purchase more. As prices decline, quantity supplied will fall and quantity demanded, you know, uh, will increase until the two are brought into a balance. Again, a lot of this is um, very important to realize, and I would recommend looking at uh, su- supply and demand curves. And I will be posting a bunch of little graphics and images on the show notes for today's uh, podcast, giving you some background information. And I will be putting my notes as well so you guys can go there and take a look. So when we talk about incentives, we also have to talk about political action as well. So incentives affect, uh, you know, affects polit- the political as well as market choices. You know, voters will consider how the expected actions of candidates will affect their personal well-being. So politicians will consider how their positions will affect their chances of being elected and ultimately reelected. So why do people run for office? Why do people make uh, political comp- contributions, you know, volunteer for political campaigns or political causes? You know, the incentives provide the answer in all these cases. So some people think that incentives matter only when people are greedy and selfish. Ultimately, I think this, this, this uh, way of looking at it is, is incorrect and false. So changes in costs and benefits will influence the actions of both of both the altruistic people and the, the greedy people in society. You know, both the selfish and the altruistic would be more likely to attempt to rescue a child in a shallow swimming pool than the rapids approaching in uh, Niagara Falls. That's just a fact, right? Uh, both are more likely to give a needy person uh, their hand-me-downs rather than, you know, their best clothes. This is not necessarily uh, tied together in a lot of ways, Uh, the personal uh, moments, that is. So another big important topic of uh, economics or understanding of economics is scarcity. I mentioned this earlier. Uh, So you've probably heard the adage, uh, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Goods are scarce and therefore we have to make choices. So again, scarcity, uh, the reality of life on our planet is that, you know, productive resources are limited. And while human desire for goods and services are virtually unlimited. So as we 
get a better handle over our production uh, processes, as we get a better handle over, you know, the ease of making things, that never will be kind of, you know, quelled in a way because human needs and human wants and desires will continue to rise throughout time. And, you know, who's to say that, you know, human needs and desires will be linear? Those human needs and desires could be exponential in the future. I mean, rise in exponentially in an exponential way, uh, especially when, you know, we get into higher and more, you know, intricate forms of technology. Um, but oh, another thing to remember, like I mentioned at the beginning of this uh, of the show is, you know, resource is scarce if it has alternative uses. So remember that. So this, you know, kind of gets into uh, an opportunity cost. You know, so like I said, you know, a resource is scarce if it has alternative uses. Uh, because we're constantly faced with, scar- you know, scarcity in the world, we must make choices. So, you know, your choice to do one thing involves giving up the opportunity to do another. Uh, this is called an opportunity cost, you know, which basically is the highest valued alternative good or activity that must be sacrificed as a result of choosing an option. So when choosing, we constantly make trade-offs in our decisions. Um, costs involving money is very common. You know, money spent on one purchase is money that is not available to spend on other things. So you can think of it in that way. Or, you know, opportunity costs costs also involve time as well. So, you know, an example is if you're going to go to a basketball game, it's, you know, watching it on, you know, going to a basketball game, watching it on TV or walking, you know, in the park all involve an opportunity cost of time. And it's up to us to make the choices in order to figure out, you know, what should I do and what shouldn't I do. But again, the realization that there is going to be trade-offs regardless of what I do. I'm not Dr. Manhattan and can split myself into a million different versions and go do everything I want to do. That's impossible. So you have to make choices. But you're also going to have to sacrifice the things you can't do in that particular moment or the money that you can't use in that particular moment for another thing. You know, it's often mentioned that uh, some things are so important that we should do them without considering the cost, right? But once, you know, it's recognized that costs are about, you know, other alternatives, it's obvious that this option is, you know, nonsensical to say. You know, saying that we should do something without considering the cost is really saying that we should do it without considering the value of the alternatives. So this type of, you know, again, this is a type of uh, fallacy of thinking, in my opinion, that, you know, everything in our life, everything choice we do will have a cost in one way or the other, Uh, specifically an opportunity cost. And when you can recognize, you know, that the costs in life are about giving up alternatives, you know, you realize that that there might be value in these alternatives, right? There might be values instead of, oh, I'm going to go ahead and watch uh, some TV shows and I get back home today. Oh, you know what? Maybe I can read a book or maybe I can catch up on uh, that uh, article I was reading earlier this week, Right. So these are all opportunity costs that can be made. And it's I think it's essential to talk about this if we're going to really get to understanding economics as a whole. Um, excuse me. So politicians often speak of, you know, free health care, free housing, free education. But, you know, and ultimately the terminology isn't very um, forthcoming and honest. 
So the provision of all these goods requires scarce resources. You know, government can shift costs, but they cannot, you know, eliminate them. That's impossible. So it's important to remember that just because there's free in some in, in front of a a word, you know, in front of you know something that we all want, we you know, we love housing, we love education, love healthcare. But the moment you put free in front of it doesn't necessarily mean it's free. The government can't you know, get rid of costs, they can only shift it. So another important thing of economics to understand is decisions are made at the margin. If we want to get the most out of, you know, our resources, options should be chosen only when the margin benefits, you know, when the marginal benefit exceeds the marginal cost. Okay, so I'm going to break this down a little bit because it's kind of uh, technical in a way. So to get most of our resources, right, um, action should be undertaken when the marginal benefit exceeds the marginal cost and rejected when the marginal cost exceeds the marginal benefit. Again, the principle of sound decision-making applies to individuals, businesses, government officials, and society as a whole. So marginalism, you know, uh, so basically, you know, there's little in the world in terms of decisions that are made on an all or nothing basis. You know, and when I say marginal, I, I mean additional, right? So marginalism is seldom ignored in our personal decisions, but freak, frequently in our conversational and, you know, po- uh, political, excuse me, frequently in our conversations and our politics. Um, to get the most out of our resources, we should only take an action when the marginal benefit are greater than the marginal cost, like I, like I mentioned earlier. So examples of marginal decision-making. This might kind of put it into uh, layman's terms and kind of make it more concrete because we have these concepts and now we have to kind of integrate them with our understanding of reality uh, itself. So how clean is your house? Do you clean, do you clean a hundred percent of the dirt away or is it a, is it a, mar- is it on a margin? Uh, how about when a company you know, is uh, selling things. You know, how about when you sell your house? Uh, in each case, you know, you clean to the point where the margin, the marginal cost outweighs the expected marginal benefit, right? And then every single one of those men- things I mentioned, uh, that's how it would work. So another thing, um, I guess like that kind of covers the first, you know, part of what I but I, th- I think, you know, ca- you know what you know, economics is in a lot of ways. But, you know, to get to the next part, we got to talk about trade and we got to talk about, you know, what markets are. And, you know, some of the things I want to talk about, you know, the gains from trade, transaction costs, ideas of demand supply. I mentioned equilibrium, market equilibriums and comparative advantages. Right. So trade promotes economic progress. Remember that. The foundation of trade is a mutual gain. Trade is mutually advantageous, you know, in order to do, in order, in order to, an ex, you know, for, for exchange to occur, the trading partner must agree, meaning there is no coercion in this activity. It's a win-win situation. It's a positive sum, not a negative sum game. So there's three major sources of gains from trade general, generally. So trade moves goods from people who value them to less, who value them less, to people who value them more. 
Um, trade makes larger outputs and higher consumption possible as a result of specialization within the market. Trade makes larger outputs and higher consumption possible because it facilitates gains from a lower per unit cost than often accompany large-scale production. So that's kind of the basics of what trade can offer a society and how a society can gain from trade. When we talk about you know trade as well, we have to also mention comparative advantages. So the law of comparative advantages basically states that you know trading partners can produce a large joint output if each specializes in the production of items for which they are low opportunity cost producer. Uh, or low, yeah. Um, this law applies to individuals, businesses, and nations. So each trading partner gains uh, when they specialize in the production of an item for which they are a low opportunity cost producer and trade for items that they can produce only at a high opportunity cost. So if I live in an area that has a tremendous amount of forests, it would not make sense for me to go and, you know, mine ore if there's no ore around because it would be a tremendous opportunity cost because I would have to go 500 miles away to where the other other town is where they mine ore but have no trees. So as you can see, when but we trade. That's what makes things better. There's a mutual gain here. I gain, you know, the, the, the village, uh, the city that has, you know, a tremendous amount of trees. They send the lumber and all the, you know, stuff made with the lumber and items that make could be made with lumber to the other city that has the ore and the people that from the city with the ore send the ore over, you know, and all the items that can be made with metal. So as you can see that the cost would be great for, you know, the other city to go and, you know, travel 500 miles to get, you know, cut the trees or for the other city to go 500 miles and mine the ore. So that's the law of comparative advantage. You know, the, so but the scope of trade is is pretty broad, right? So ideas, I mean, this basic concept of what trade actually is. So shopping at a grocery store is technically trade. Having a garage sale, you know, buying, you know, uh, imports from China and Mexico, um, going to a film, uh, renting a house or an apartment. This is all types of trade. You know, and the importance of trade in, in our modern world is is really uh, understated. Especially in today's, you know, tariff man situation and all this other crap that we're seeing. So trade makes it possible for us to over, you know, to con- you know, for us to consume a bundle of goods and services far beyond what we're able to produce for ourselves. So imagine the difficulty involved in producing your own housing, clothing, and food. To say nothing of computers, television, uh, televisions, you know, uh, dishwashers, uh, cars, phones. You know, uh, all types of things. I mean, just imagine how difficult that would be. You know, uh, so but countries that, you know, impose obstacles to exchange, either domestic or international, uh, reduce the ability of their citizens to achieve gains from trade and to live more prosperous lives. So uh, a good example of this is uh, the Trump administration's tariffs that have been going around. So um, it was... Uh, Stated in Reason Magazine not too long ago that GM lost a billion dollars in the, the trade with the trade wars because of the aluminum and the other tariffs that were set. Now, 
I also want to mention that, you know, uh, GM recently laid off, I think, 14,000 people. So you could see how tariffs have an effect because what actually happens with tariffs? What do tariffs actually do? What is their, you know, their ultimate consequence? So what happens when you impose a tariff on something, it increases the price to the developer, right? So GM and whatever the car companies, they went to Washington and said, hey, we're going to have to increase cars by X amount of thousand dollars if this continues. And, you know, these, many of these companies are not going to suck up the losses. They're just going to take these losses, increase the price of the cars already and put it on the consumer. So ultimately, it's the consumers, it's the people in the nation, all types of people from, you know, the middle class to the working class to the rich, whoever it is, they're going to be getting an ultimate, ultimately another form of tax in a way on top of the good. So another thing to understand is, you know, transaction costs are an obstacle to trade again. So, uh, you know, like tariffs, so transaction costs reduce the volume of trade and gains it generates. You know, lower transaction costs will increase the volume of and gains from trade. Uh, so transaction costs, when talking about that, you know, our resources spent on searching out for trading partners, you know, searching out product information, negotiating terms of trade, closing sales. You know, that's that's how resources are spent usually or should be spent necessarily. Um, but, you know, transaction costs are also – have always been an obstacle to, to, to trade, but you know, it's it's important to understand that what people will use you know these transaction costs you know aka tariffs as a way to signal to to you know to people that might not know what tariffs actually do in a market economy in order to signal them that hey we're going to put these tariffs and we're going to guarantee to keep your jobs here when in reality you know. The majority of the reason why a lot of manufacturing has decreased in the United States over the last 15, 20 years is not necessarily because these jobs are going overseas. Mostly it's because of automation, unfortunately. And that's just, you know, a fact. I mean, if you talk about jobs going overseas, I've seen estimates, the highest I've seen is around 10 to 15%. But, you know, I've seen some at five to seven. So, you know, take it for what it's worth, but it's not what, you know, politicians are trying to sell people. It's not necessarily how the world actually works. This is like, you know, how the world, some people would like to work. So, you know, why do we experience transaction costs in general? You know, so a lot of the time there is uh, political obstacles like taxes, tariffs, licensing requirements, regulations, etc., um, some of the time, you know, there's a lack of information, you know, finding sellers and making the, you know, have not being able to make the best deals. Other time it's, a, you know, it's physical objects. Like we can't get, you know, to the location from where we are. So think of, you know, uh, people in, um, the Northern, Northern Canada where, uh, you know, Roads are very, very slick and very, very hard to traverse, and you have to pretty much stay there. You can't really do trading that that easily at certain times of the year. Um, so we're not talking about you know tr 
trade in general, we got to talk about middlemen and gains from trade and transaction costs. So middlemen reduce the transaction costs. This is why people value their services. So middlemen, you know, examples include you know stockbrokers, automotive dealers, grocers, um, tons of different merchants, you know, jewelers, uh, real estate agents. You know, that's kind of an example of middlemen. Uh, so we talk about transaction costs. You also have to mention technology. So like in recent years, you know, the internet has reduced the transaction costs of numerous exchanges, which has been a, a very good and a very important, you know, movement in uh, the world of economics. You know, with just think about it, with just a few, you know, swipes of your of your screen, you, know, you can shop for movies, clothes, goods for your home, locate a hotel, uh, a venue to throw a, a rock show, uh, you know, obtain tickets to like a show, another, you know, a, a football game or a basketball game, or you know, get a car to deliver to you right now. Somebody pick you up in a ride sharing uh, type of situation. I mean. Uh, <laughs> Is really, really, you know, made it much easier, I mean, to live where we are today and to make these types of trades. You know, the internet and technology in general has really expedited the ability for the everyday person. You don't have to, you don't have to be a gatekeeper necessarily to be able to get these things done and taken care of. So, you know, another thing I want to talk about is, you know, the prices you know, bring the choices of buyers and sellers into balance in a way. So the, uh, this is kind of an interesting point. The market price of a good reflects the, the forces of demand and supply. So the price will tend to bring the quantity. So the price will tend to bring the quantity demanded and quantity supplied into balance. So when we talk about demand, what does that necessarily mean? So let's talk about the demand side of the market. So the demand curve represents the response of buyers, otherwise known as consumers, to a change in price. Okay, so the demand curve represents the response of buyers, consumers, to a change in price. The law of demand states that there is an inverse relationship between the price of a good and the quantity that the buyers are willing to purchase when other, when other things are held constant. As the price of a good increases, consumer purchase less of the good. As the price decreases, consumers will purchase more. It's pretty self-explanatory in a lot of ways. And, you know, I mentioned supply, uh, you mean demand. Now I have to go to the supply side of the market. So the supply curve represents, you know, uh, the response of sellers, producers in this case, to change, you know, to a change in price. So the law of supply states that there is a positive relationship between the price of a good and the quantity that are, that sellers are willing to supply when other things are held constant. So again, uh, ultimately, as the price of a good increases, sellers are willing to supply more of the good. As a price decreases, sellers will supply less. Again, pretty explanatory. I mentioned equilibrium not too long ago, and uh, to get into it, equilibrium occurs at the price where the amount of the good demanded by the consumer is just equal to the amount sellers are willing to supply. The choice of a buyer and sellers will move the market toward equilibrium. Ultimately, consumers will purchase on, you know, only units that value more than prices. Similar producers will supply only units that can be produced at a cost less than price, uh, aka making a profit in that case. So in equilibrium, all mutual advantages uh, you know, 
advantageous uh, exchanges that will occur ultimately. So, you know, what necessarily determines if a good will be produced, right? Like what, how does that, how does that happen in in, in economics? How does that happen in the economy and specifically a market economy? So in the market economy, firms will folk will, you know, will search for an opportunity to produce goods for which sale revenues will exceed their costs. So if a firm decides, okay, I'm going to rent a place out, I'm going to buy equipment, I'm going to then use this equipment to provide a service or to make something, a product of some sort. And then hopefully my production cost, you know, my, you know, and my opportunity costs would be low enough to the point where I can sell this good and get some reward for the risk I've taken by starting up a company or something like that. Right. So firms will continue to produce a good or service only if consumers are willing to pay the price that is greater than or equal to their uh, per unit cost. So just remember that. And again, there's a difference between price and cost. You gotta, these, these are things that are very important to understand, specifically when you're trying to understand how things, you know, really, how this all works, how, do you, how this all breaks down in a way. Um, so demand curve shifters, what, shif- what shifts the demand curve? And again, like I said, I'm going to be uh, providing a lot of visual, visual representations of this on my website, www.conversationsandmeditations.com, so you guys can uh, see this. It's going to be in the show notes for today's episode. So, you know, the following will lead to a change in a demand curve or, you know, a shift in the curve. Uh, so changes in consumer income. So if the, the, the buyers have uh, an increase in income, they're more willing to buy stuff in a way. Um, change in the number of consumers, right? Change in the price of a related good. Changes in expectations. Uh, another important thing is demographic changes. And, you know, finally, you know, changes in, uh, in consumer tastes and preferences. So, you know, at one time, Beanie Babies were the hottest thing when I was a young person. Now, not so much, you know. <laughs> it's kind of sad. I have a ton of them at home. <laughs> but uh, ultimately, you know, changes in demand and quantity demanded. Uh, these are another part of the puzzle. Uh, of how this, this all you know gets gets you know situated. So a change in demand, uh, which is a, a shift in the entire demand curve, that's what that means. A change in quantity demanded is a movement along the same demand curve in response to a change in price. So effects of change in demand: when the demand decreases for something, the equilibrium price and quantity will fall. When a demand increase, when demand increases, excuse me, the equilibrium price and quantity will rise. So, and that's that's for demand curve shifters, right? Now, kind of getting into supply curve shifters. You know, the following will cause the supply, you know, curve to shift. Uh, so changes in resource prices. Let's say I make. Uh, you know, motherboards, but, you know, all the components, you know, of making a motherboard, the silicon and all this other stuff is pretty much uh, gone up in price because of a X event, right? So changes in technology. Um, Let's say I was able to produce something at a certain rate, but then somewhere in my production line, I was able to implement and put in a new technology that increased the amount 
or increase the rate that I was able to produce things. So that's a kind of a, it's an example of a change in technology and how that would sh- you know s- shift the supply curve. Um, like I, I mentioned, you know, elements of of nature, uh, so natural disasters, uh, political disruptions, uh, of course, so uh, coups and all those other things, and also you know uh, changes in taxes. So uh, a change in a supply uh, curve is a shift in the entire supply curve, mind you. But a change in the quantity supplied is movement along the same supply curve and a response to the change in price. A lot of this stuff is mirrored between quantity, you know, I mean, the supply and demand in a lot of ways. And that's a really good way of understanding this. And again, like I said, I'll be putting all this stuff online so you guys can go through it and kind of get, you know, a deeper and better understanding. And of course, I'll be providing some books and providing some additional material so you guys can uh, read it and enjoy. Um, so the effects of a change in supply, you know, when supply decreases, the equilibrium price will rise and the equilibrium quantity will fall. When, su- when supply increases, the equilibrium price will fall and the quantity, equilibrium quantity will rise. So the market adjustment process, so the market, you know, it doesn't, doesn't really occur simultaneously, the market adjustment process. It will take time for both consumers and producers to adjust fully to a change in market conditions. So that's another thing that people need to understand. Like the market isn't static. It's dynamic, you know, because in a dynamic world, the adjustment process is, you know, continuous. The impact of changes in demand and supply and factors that underlie shifts in the curves are central to understanding the market process itself. That's why, one of the fallacies of, 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 of looking into economics is viewing it solely as a static, you know, um, never, sh- you know, a static type of uh, science. But it really it isn't. It's a dynamic type. So now some of the concepts I want to talk about is, you know, profit and losses, the, the concept of that, um, job you know, creation versus, you know, the creation of wealth and stuff like this. So, you know, according to uh, market economics, you know, you know, uh, profits direct businesses towards productive activities that increase the value of resources while losses direct them away from wasteful activities that reduce resource value. So if we're going to get, you know, the most out of the available resource projects that, you know, increased value must be encouraged while those that use resources less productively must be discouraged. Um, this is precisely what profits and losses do in the economy. Um, again, too many people out there who've heard the word profit and somehow, you know, have it in connection with exploitation. I think it's, which is, you know, you're looking through, you know, uh, a Marxist lens if you're doing that. But obviously, I think it's important to take a listen and try to, you know, if you have that presupposition of, of profits and understanding of business, I think it's important to take a listen and hear a different perspective and then go back to the drawing board and see what you think. So uh, businesses purchase resources. So this includes labor, capital, and entrepreneurial talent, you know, in order to produce goods and services. In a market economy, producers will have to bid resources away from their alternative uses because the owners of 
the resources will supply them only at the price at least equal at what they could have earned anywhere else. So the producer's opportunity cost of supplying a good or service will equal the payment required to bid the resource away from their other potential users. So we talked about costs earlier. There's a big distinction between economic costs versus accounting costs. Um, So economic costs include the cost of all resources required to produce a good, including the opportunity cost of assets owned by the firm. Accounting costs omit the opportunity cost of assets owned by the firm. Accountants focus on the net income, which is slightly different than the economic profit. The firm's net income will overstate, you know, will overstate profit as measured, uh, you know, by the economist usually. So, again, to understand some of this stuff in a uh, more, I guess, easy easier way is to maybe give you some uh, pretty simple equations. So, profit equals total revenue minus total cost. Pretty simple. It's just uh, you know just minusing. So total revenue though is uh, price times quantity. You know, summed for each you know good sold. <coughs> Excuse me. Total cost in this case equals the opportunity cost of all the resources required for the production of the good. And again, profit equals total revenue, which is price times quantity. Minus total costs, which is the opportunity cost of all the resources required for the production of the good. So, again, you might be asking me, like, what is the, what is a function of, of profits and losses in a market economy? So, profit is uh, present presented when value when the value of the good, as indicated by the price that consumers are willing to pay, exceeds the value of resources required for its production. Profit is a reward for transforming resources into something of greater value. Losses are just as important. They penalize businesses that produce goods and services that consumers value less than their unit cost. So the role of profit and losses. So here's an example. So suppose a business can produce a thousand cups at uh, mugs at a total uh, cost of $20,000. So what is the profit or loss if the cups can be sold for $22 each, or mugs can be sold for $20 each. How does the value of you know the mugs compare with the value of the resources used? Is this a productive activity? Now suppose that the mugs can be sold for only 17 each. What is the profit or loss? In this case, how does the value of the mugs compare with the value of the resources used? Is this a productive activity? So I think it's important to kind of look into a lot of these things and kind of, you know, uh, break it down. Um, so we talk about people in the, in the market economy. People earn income by providing others with things they value. So even people who are motivated mostly by the desire for income will have a strong incentive to develop skills and take actions that are valuable to others. Moreover, you know, people seeking high earnings will have a strong incentive to pay close attention to what others value. So you can earning income necessarily by helping others, right? So people are different in many ways, right? We have different abilities, productive uh, abilities, preferences, attitudes, willingness to take risks, specialized skills, 
You know, differences in income arise because of our differences affect the value of goods and services we help create and supply. There's a direct link between helping others in ways that they value and the income we learn, we earn. If you want to earn, you know, a high income, figure out how to help others is a great deal. So again, I, I cannot, you know, state this enough. Incentives matter. The direct link between providing others with things that they value and our personal earnings provide each of us with a strong incentive to develop our talents and skills. So think about like a, you know, a star athlete and entertainers, musicians are rewarded for their special, you know, skills and talents. You know, entrepreneurs are rewarded for the strategic risk taking and the ability to put things in the line and go all the way. Like uh, when Elon Musk decided to uh, have his fourth rocket go up and put all his PayPal money in there, pretty much majority of his money, uh, uh, you know, 10 years ago. And, you know, through that risk was able to get SpaceX to where it is today. And, you know, also think about, you know, like if you're a college student, you know, they're rewarded for improving their knowledge and skills and pretty much in general, but also in the particular uh, field they want to go into. So when we talk about income, you know, we have to talk about living standards and, uh, you know, how that how that plays into it. So income and living standards cannot increase without an increase in the availability of goods and services that people value. So that's a very, very, you know, important and, you know, I would say essential thing because if you look around the world and uh, you look at the living standards around the world, in many cases, those living standards are also very highly connected to the incomes of the people in that country or place. But, you know, luckily around the world, like I mentioned in a couple episodes ago, incomes are rising uh, around the world. And But in certain cases in America, incomes have been stagnant. So that's something to talk about at a later time about the stagnating nature of uh, since the 1970s in a lot of fields and different professions. Um. So production of goods and services people value, not just, you know, jobs provide the sources of high living standards. So think about it this way. If jobs were the key to high incomes, we could easily create as many as we wanted. All of us could work one day, you know, as Milton Friedman said, you know, digging holes with spoons and the next day, you know, filling them back up. So we would all be employed. There'd be 100 percent employment and we would also be exceedingly poor because such jobs would not generate goods and services that people valued or the society would value. So again, there's a fallacy here of destroying goods to create jobs in a lot of ways. Um, so a lot of politicians and proponents of government projects are very fond of bragging about the jobs created by the programs, but you know, their programs sometimes reduce the availability of the good and services. So, an example is uh, the Agricultural Adjustment Act of uh, 1933. In an effort to prevent farms' prices from falling during the Great Depression, the federal government paid farmers to plow under portions of their crops and slaughter some of their livestock. Potato farmers were paid to spray potatoes with dye, making them unfit for human consumption. Six million baby pigs were killed in 1933 alone. A result, less goods and services were available for consumption and people starved. <laughs> So, I mean, I'm sorry I'm laughing, but you can see how this great idea by uh, some of these central planners, how it actually led to uh, horrific uh, outcomes in a lot of ways. 
you know, another idea is the 2009 cash for clunkers. Uh, that's typically brought up, you know, under the cash for clunkers program. You know, car dealers were paid to destroy older cars that were traded in for a newer automobile. You know, proponents of the program argue that it would stimulate recovery by reducing, by excuse me, by in- inducing uh, people to buy new cars. But the re- ultimate result, you know, if you look at the data, those consumers spent more on automobiles, both new and used, and therefore less was available for spending on the time. If you're getting, if you're like destroying used cars, you know, the used car market will ultimately go up. So all of this is, you know, unsound economics to say the least. But you know, you may be able to help specific producers by increasing the scarcity of their products, but this will not necessarily promote prosperity, at least in, in the general uh, sense. It might promote prosperity for a few, you know, producers. So while they're more subtle and, you know, government actions that increase the opportunity costs of obtaining various goods and services are also very destructive. When more resources are used to pr- produce a good, fewer are available to produce other goods. So the corn ethanol program provides, an, you know, another good example. Production of gasoline with ethanol is more expensive. Ethanol costs approximately $1.50 more than, en- uh, than the energy equivalent of, ga- of a gallon of gasoline. When corn is used to produce the ethanol and gasoline less is available for other purposes, result the ethanol program reduces supply of corn and other feed grain and causing their prices to soar. So there is, you know, again, your intentions might be pure. Your intentions might be, you know, very, very wholesome. But ultimately, it doesn't necessarily lead to the most, uh, you know, peaceful and prosperous of outcomes. So does does the question, I guess, now after I made those, you know, statements of government interventionism is, you know, does government spending create jobs? In a sense, this is another great question that a lot of people like to talk about. So I would say the government spending, you know, to create jobs requires either taxes or borrowing the money. But this crowds out the private sector spending and employment. So the relevant issue is whether the jobs created by the government spending add more to output than displace private sector jobs. So think of it that way. So the job of value matters, right? So it's not simply more jobs that improve our economic well-being, but jobs that produce goods and services people value are willing to pay for. When this fact is forgotten, people are often misled into acceptance of programs that will reduce net wealth rather than create it. So to kind of, uh, you know, close off today's show, I'd like to finish up on this. So economic progress primarily through trade, investment, better ways of doing things, and sound economic institutions. You know, trade, investment, and people, and productive assets, technology advancements, and improvements in economic organization enhance our ability to produce goods and services, you know, and achieve higher living standards. You know, what is economic progress? You know, (laughs) Americans, you know, produce and earn 30 times as much as they did in 1750. Why are Americans so much more productive today than they were 250 years ago? Well, the the answer is economic growth and expansion and the availability of goods and services provided by, you know, private uh, companies and private individuals or groups of individuals that come together to make something. So the sources of, you know, sources of economic growth, you know, include investments in productive assets and discovery and development of resources, tools, machines, human capital, minerals, improvements in technology, internal combustion engine, electricity, computers, uh, tra- you know, transistors, 
um, improvements in economic organizations, legal systems, competitive markets. Um, again, you know, the invisible hand of the market, which is a which is Adam Smith's uh, you know idea, directs buyers and sellers toward activities that promote general welfare. As Adam Smith said in 1776, every individual is continually exerting himself to find out the most advantageous employment for whatever capital he can command. It is his own advantage indeed, not that of society which he has in his view. But the study of his own advantage naturally or rather necessarily leads him to prefer that employment which is most advantageous to society. He intends only his own gain, and he is in this, as many other cases, led by an invisible hand to promote an end which was not part of his intention. So what he's saying there, the invisible hand, which he's talking about, is the price system. When directed by prices, individuals intend intended only to you know for their own gain, but their actions also promote the goals of others, leading to greater prosperity generally. So, one static and current market price of a particular good or service provides buyers and sellers with what they need to bring their actions into harmony with the best possible information and current actions and preferences of others. So, I think it's important to understand that. You know, market prices summarize relevant information. You know, um, as you know, Frederick Hayek mentioned, the primary function of markets is to provide information both to buyers and sellers. Market prices reflect information about consumer preferences, costs, matters related to timing, location, circumstances, information that in any large market is well beyond the comprehension of any individual or central planning authority. You know, market prices act like a giant computer network. You know, as a giant, you know, you know, web in a way, grinding out an indicator that will give all participants both the information they need and the incentives to act on it. So, again, self-interest guided by the invisible hand, as Thomas, I mean, as Adam Smith mentioned, is uh, is very important, uh, very important concept. You know, so I guess. I have a few more things to go in here, but I'm running out of time. But uh, I would like to uh, go as far as I can, and then I'll catch it up on the next show. So, self, you know, we talked about self-interest guided by the invisible hand. We talked about um, a lot of those different things. But, you know, too often long-term consequences or the secondary effects of actions are ignored. So as Henry Hazlitt said in Economics in One Lesson, you know, sound economics requires that when analyzing a change, it is important to trace not merely the immediate results, but the results in the long run, not merely the primary consequences, but the secondary consequences, and not merely the effects on some special group, but the effects on everyone. So just to end it here, I'm going to end it with a broken window fallacy, and then uh, I'll close it up. So the broken window fallacy is a you know it's a classic story. A boy throws a ball through a window of a shop. Therefore, the shopkeeper hires a glazer to fix the, a broken window. Noting the high visible employment of the person fixing the window, some argue the broken window is a good thing. <laughs> this is wrong and ignores a secondary effect. If the shopkeeper had not spent the funds fixing the window, he would have spent them on other things. You know, employment in these areas, uh, you know, perhaps he might have spent it on hiring more people. Perhaps he would have expanded his business. Perhaps he would have gotten to a different thing. Um, so employment in these areas of production would have had have been, you know, larger and continually 
um, or excuse me, community would have uh, had both the window and items purchased by the shopkeeper. Uh, one of the secondary effects are considered. Uh, it is clear that destructive actions such as those resulting from floods, hurricanes, destructive, you know, public policy harm a society and fail to expand net employment. So the reason these secondary effects are important is the failure to consider them and, you know, the unintended secondary effects is often a major source of economic error. Policy changes often generate unintended secondary effects considering the following example. Um, so, yeah, this is kind of uh, a little, uh, little uh, thing on economics today. And this is kind of, I guess the main reason why I wanted to do this, guys, was I wanted to deliver economics that was taught to me in university and economics that I learned outside of the university and, you know, during my time there and um, kind of give a economics 101, you know, trying to do a podcast form of, you know, Henry Hazlitt's economic in one lesson is not very easy. But I do want to thank you again. And I do want to tell you that, you know, understanding how economics works is an essential part of understanding how the world works. And if we want to make the right choices, we need to we need to have the right data and the right information so we don't, you know, have a opportunity cost that might be too costly to us. So again, I want to thank you for your time and I want to thank you for uh listening. Again, please go to www.conversationsandmeditations.com to check out all the newest and greatest stuff there. I'm Virgil Verix and have a wonderful day. Take care.